revelation is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've ever been confused about what the book of Revelation is about, what the letter is, it is a vision given to John, the Apostle John, in the latter part of his life, in his late 90s, or excuse me, in his 90s. The Lord comes to him while he's on the island of Patmos, actually exiled because of his faith. He's been placed on this island by himself, and while he's placed there, the Lord reveals some things to him that perhaps while he was busy with ministry, he wouldn't have the opportunity to sit and listen and take in and write down. And so as the Lord reveals himself, Jesus, to John, who walked with Jesus, he reveals some things that he already knew, and he reveals some things that are yet to come. And so the outline can be found in chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus, in this vision, speaks to John and says, write these things down. What you have seen is found in chapter 1. What is now existing, what's taking place right now is in chapter 2 through 3, where we find ourselves this morning. And then in chapter 4, write the things that will take place after these things. And that's chapter 4 through verse 22. So primarily, the largest piece of this book is prophetic for future. And so that said, these letters that he's written to these seven churches that existed in John's day are actually letters that were written to be applied to them locally, personally, right there and then where they were. And at the same time, there's a historical telling of the seven periods of church history, as well as personal application for you and I. It's a universal message to us as the church of Jesus Christ. And so here we find today's reading, we start with the church at Smyrna. Now I'm going to read the verses, there's only four And um, basically, he's just gotten done speaking with Ephesus. And then he says in verse 8 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. Now, stop there, because if you've not been with us, to the angel, he's not writing to an angel, but the word angel there actually means messenger. So this messenger that he's writing to, we believe to be one of the pastors of these seven real churches, these seven churches that existed in modern-day Turkey. In those days, it was in Asia Minor. So he says, write to the pastor of this church in Smyrna, these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. Now, I think it's important, and we'll look at it here in a minute, but every one of these letters Jesus reveals something to each specific church about himself that pertains to the spot that they're in right at that time, something they would need for encouragement. But before we get there, let's talk about this this letter to Smyrna, because Smyrna is one of the only cities in these seven churches that it still exists today. Smyrna is now today called Izmir. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's Izmir. And it's from the word myrrh, Smyrna is. So today, this city still exists. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the coast of the Aegean Sea, which is really a better port city than Ephesus was. And I believe primarily because it was actually shielded from some of the brunt of the main, you know, it's, it's further away from the open sea. So it was more of a harbor. It had some safety from the wind and the waves that maybe Ephesus would take on a little bit more of. 
uh, it was approximately 100,000 people that occupied it in John's day. Now, a harbor there is greater than Ephesus, but, so it was, it was a, a more sought-after place to be, but it was also known for its rich farmland. It was also a center for science and medicine. So if you think that we've, you know, we've really progressed a lot more than ancient societies, I would submit to you that, that science, and, um, science and medicine were already taking place in those days, and they were in these more developed cities, they were actually, they had places of research already going on. Now, another piece of the city was they had pagan temples that blanketed the city. They were all over the place. And if you look at the skyline, and I have a picture there for you, you can see the skyline, it kind of looks like a crown. Now, if you go to like Chicago or New York City, oftentimes in these little gift shops that are in the airport or even sometimes in the middle of the city themselves, they'll have pictures of the skyline of that city and it sets it apart from the other cities that you've been to and you'll see buildings that you recognize. Now, for them... This skyline looks so much like a, a royal crown that they actually nicknamed this place because of its skyline, but also because of its natural beauty. It was known as the crown of Asia. It was a place that was well known. It was, you know, just, just a place that you wanted to go vacation. It was a well-off city. Now, this slide has a lot on it, but there's a lot about this city we need to know. Number one... One of the things that this, the people of Smyrna and the government of Smyrna had done is they, they actually built a center for worship, but the worship of Rome in the city. So they literally had a temple to worship the government. Now, maybe this isn't you, but we have a tendency, whether we're conservative or liberal, to worship government. Why is that? Because we look to it for all of our needs. And so... Many times, we would scoff at the idea of building a temple to worship the government, but I would submit to you that we do all but build a temple. And maybe you guys aren't that way, but many of our society, including Christians, worship the government and look to it for deliverance, so much so, if you think that you don't, if your president doesn't get voted in, do you lose hope? And if you lose hope, I would submit to you that perhaps your government's more of an idol than you think. But in this city, they had built a worship center for Rome, and they had done other acts of what they would call patriotism. They were patriots. They, they loved their country. Is loving your country a bad thing? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I think that the more that we don't love our country, the more that we're not going to take care of it, and therefore it's going to be divided down the middle and a country standing against itself, a, a nation divided against itself will fall, right? So patriotism is something we need to be careful with, and at the same time, there should be some. But in Rome, the, 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 the empire itself, the city of Rome actually awarded the city of Smyrna for their patriotism and they gave them funds and made them build this temple dedicated to worship the emperor Tiberius in 26 AD. So not only government worship, but then worshiping the, the, the person that was in charge of it all, the emperor himself. So this was in this day and age and in this city in particular, emperor worship was actually 
uh, it, this was a hotbed for it. If you wanted to go somewhere specifically to worship the emperor, you would do so in Smyrna. So at the same time, in those days, when they first built that temper, temper, the temple to worship the emperor, um, it was voluntary to worship the emperor. You didn't have to. See, in, in their day, uh, you could worship any gods you wanted. And so if you wanted to worship the emperor also, you just go burn incense to him. But in the Roman Empire, later in John's day, 96 AD, when the letter of Revelation is being written, it was mandatory. You did not have a choice. You must needs go worship the emperor. And if you didn't, there were consequences to pay. And so in the Roman Emperor, excuse me, the Roman Empire at this time, you could worship any gods as long as you also worship the emperor. But this is a problem for anybody that's a monotheist, somebody that worships only one God. Now, what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall worship the Lord, and you shall worship him only. You shall have no other gods before me. And the idea was you should not bow the knee, you should not bow the heart, you should not serve anything but God alone. And so for Jews and for Christians as well, this would be a problem because in order to serve their God, just like in Daniel, if you remember the the book of Daniel, you actually have this young man that is told you need to bow down to this golden statue and and basically he can't. So much so that he gets in trouble for praying to his God instead of the gods of Babylon. And so in the Roman Empire, Empire, you would get in trouble. Now, there's one exception to this rule, and that was the Jewish population. The Jewish population were recognized as a state religion. And I don't know all the history behind how that happened, but they were allowed to only worship Yahweh, their God. And so the Jews, not the Christians, but the Jews only, were allowed to, as a state religion, worship their God and their God only. They didn't have to go burn incense to Caesar, to the emperor. And so in this context, Christians were actually persecuted by the state, by Rome, and they were persecuted by the Jews. Interesting, because you would think that the Jews would be allies with them, but instead, while the Christians were down for not worshiping the emperor, the Jews actually ended up being Uh, someone that would also persecute them. So it was a hard place in the world to be a Christian at that time. And I would submit to you, it was probably the worst place to try and live out your faith. And yet the gospel was for each one of these groups. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and also for the Greek or the Gentile. But then if you go to chapter 2, verse 5, interesting, he re-emphasizes that point. Paul writing to the Romans, ironically, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says also, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and 
There will be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who, goes, who does evil and the Jew first and also the Greek. But there is glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So the same judgment or wrath is offered to Jew and Gentile alike, and the same peace and joy and continuance in eternal life, blessing from God, is also equally offered to Jew and Gentile alike. And so, as we start our passage this morning, he says, I want to reveal some things to you about me. Jesus, speaking to John to the church at Smyrna, he says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus reveals something to each church about himself. And in particular, this church, he says, I am the first and the last. He says, I'm eternal. No matter what happened from the beginning to the end, I am the first word and I will have the last word. I will take care of things. I know the end from the beginning. I have been there. I am the end in the beginning. And then he says, I also was dead and came to life. So many of them feel like their life is going to be threatened because as believers in that day and age, they could be thrown into prison. They could be burned at the stake for their faith. And what it says here is he says, don't fear, I was dead. I'm your savior. I'm the captain of your salvation. Wherever you're going, I've already been there. He says, I was dead, but I came back to life. And then he says in John chapter 11, verse 25, perhaps something that would still be ringing in the apostle John's head. Jesus is speaking to John, but he's also speaking about something that happened in their everyday practical lives. John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at a tomb after Lazarus has been dead for Four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, verse 19. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. He said, I am the life. And then he said, 
He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And so to a group that is threatened with persecution that could lead to physical death, he goes, though you may die, you will live. Now that's not according to the flesh, right? Because you and I both know that if I die, life doesn't come after that. Not from a science side of things, not from a physical side of things. And yet what Jesus says to them is true for us that though we may die because of our faith, smyrnans, though you may be killed for your faith, yet you shall live. And so he's saying something. It's not just a spiritual resurrection that we look forward to. It's a physical one. It is a physical, eternal life. And I know that because when Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, came back from the dead, he still had the scars in his physical hands. He still ate food with them. And so there's something that we need to embrace here, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the everlasting life. And so though we may die in this lifetime, he says, yet shall we live. It's a promise. And so um, verse 9, he says, I know your works. Now this is how he started with Ephesus, right? He said, I know your works. I know your works. And, and my question for you would be, have you ever thought that no one sees what you're doing? Jesus sees what you are doing when no one is looking. And to those of you that are in sin or have a habit of sin, yes, he knows that. And that should scare you. That should cause you to fear the Lord and to depart from iniquity. And yet, for those of you that have made a habit of serving the Lord, even when no one's looking, guess what? I know your works. He knows your works. He knows your works when it doesn't go well for you, when you get in trouble for doing your works. But he says, I know your works. And then he says, I know your tribulation. Now, the word tribulation is, is something where you might think of um, some sort of torture. Tribulation isn't something like where somebody hits you and the pain hurts for a little bit and then it's gone. Tribulation actually comes from the root word, which means a crushing pressure, a persistent crushing. It's a term used to describe grinding grain into flour. It's a term that's used to describe crushing grapes into wine. It's also a term that's used to describe pressing olives into oil. Now, that pressure can be immense for a time. It can be immense over a long period of time. But nonetheless, it is pressure that affects you. It's the pressure that weighs upon you when you have financial burden and you don't know what's going to happen. It's the pressure that weighs upon you as pressure builds up throughout the day, as little things have been thrown on your shoulders. And at the end of the day, your child comes to you and says something they've never said before, right? They say, hey, dad, can I have? And it's not something that's really that big of a deal, but it's the straw. It's the last little piece that puts you over the edge because all day long you've had little things added. Now the Romans, the Greeks would know what this meant, perhaps the Jews as well. Because in that day and age, if they wanted to get you to confess of a crime, if they were going to interrogate a witness, they wouldn't shine a light on you. They would lay you on the ground, they would lay a board across your chest, and they would slowly add weight until when you would breathe in, you couldn't breathe out until they would finally get you to go, uncle, 
or you would die because you wouldn't be able to breathe out and therefore it would just literally crush you and suffocate you to death. That's tribulation. Jesus experienced it at least twice that I can think of. One is found in Luke chapter 22. Turn with me there. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. By the way, the garden's name is not coincidence. Gethsemane means olive press. But we find an interesting detail in the account that Luke writes. And it makes sense because Dr. Luke is a physician. And so he's aware of physical, uh, the way things uh, affect us physically. And so as he watched the life of Jesus, Luke saw the things that happened to him physically and how he dealt with them. And he was enamored by the things that he experienced. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, we have Jesus in the garden. Very common, well-known passage. And it says, as verse 39, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came to this place, apparently it was a place that they would commonly go to get time away from the crowds, He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And as he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know from other accounts that he prayed this three times. And it says in verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, that's that word, same word where we get the word tribulation, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation." But he says there, when he was in agony, verse 44, he prayed so earnestly and he was with such overwhelming weight upon his physical body body, that when he sweat, blood entered into his sweat glands and came out of his pores. Now there's a fancy term for that, and I would love to dazzle you with my knowledge of memorizing that word, but I forget what it's called. But it's a physical phenomenon that when your body goes under so much stress, there are several cases on record where that happens. Blood enters into the sweat gland, and the sweat actually produces blood, not coming through a break in the skin, but through the sweat gland because of tribulation. Now, if you think about it, he prayed this, not my will, but yours be done three times. And as we went to Israel... Two times ago, unfortunately this last time we didn't get to go to this place, there's a place where we sponsored a stone to help this village. It's called Nazareth Village. And they have an olive press. And I was going to put a picture, but I wasn't very organized, so I didn't. But it's basically this big, long beam from that end to this end of the stage. And it's a fulcrum. It's got a fulcrum in the middle. And then it's got weights hanging off the end. And as these weights are added to it, It presses down on one end on olives. And as the olives are pressed down upon, you get different squeezins. Now, the first one is extra virgin. It's the first time they've been squeezed. 
And the second time is virgin. And the third time is like, you know, you use it for your lamps. But the point being, this olive oil, this pure olive oil, and I might have gotten that backwards, I'm not sure. But anyway, there's three pressings. But each one of those tribulations that the olives go through produce this oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit that lights a fire within us. The Holy Spirit that actually makes us the light of the world. This olive oil that comes out is what they would use everything for daily life, including lighting lanterns, including making offerings. And so all of that said, this tribulation that they are going through, this crushing pressure, is a pressure that God was not unaware of. Jesus had been himself through tribulation. He didn't say, Father, take this cup of wrath away from me, and that's it. He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus can come authoritatively to this church at Smyrna and say, I have experienced tribulation. I see your tribulation And though I'm not promising to take you out of it, I will be with you through it. And that is comforting to those who have experienced tribulation. But turn with me to Romans chapter 5 because the writer of Romans, Paul, actually tells us that tribulation is a way that God actually promotes us in the Christian life. He actually produces character in us through tribulation that could be produced in no other way. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says, and I'll start in verse 1 because I don't like things out of context. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all get excited about that, right? We want peace with God. He says, Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, we all love this. But then if you go to the next verse, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So tribulation produces patience. Patience produces character. Character produces hope. Have you ever noticed that when the things that you put your hope in are no longer there, you're more likely to put your hope in something that can't be taken from you? That's what tribulation shows us, what we can really trust in. But another passage is in John chapter 16, and then we'll go on. John chapter 16, in verse 33. His disciples are speaking to him, and they they express to Jesus in verse 30, Now, we are sure that you know all things, Jesus, and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered in each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace In the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. 
in the world you will have tribulation. But then he says, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so, again, Jesus expressing that tribulation is a reality, and I would submit to you that for the Christian, tribulation is not an elective course. Did you know that? In this life, tribulation is not an elective course. And so, verse 9, he continues on, he says, I know not only your tribulation, but I know your poverty. But you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say you are Jews. They are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So your poverty, you guys can wake them up. <laughs> Said the girl. Sorry, I'm distracted by that. And since they're mine, you can wake them up. So I know your poverty. They wouldn't be hired. Did you know that as Christians in that society, for being believers in Jesus, they would not be hired. Certain vendors wouldn't even sell to them. And some places wouldn't let them live at a spot because of their faith. They wouldn't rent to them. So they're poverty-stricken. It's one thing to be persecuted. It's a whole other thing to not have anywhere to live. They would be tempted to recant their faith, right? And he also says, I know your enemies. I know those that say they are Jews and are not. And in Romans chapter 9 and 10, he says, not everyone who's born of Abraham, that's his descendants, is actually really sons of faith or sons of Abraham. Just because they were born of the, the descendants of Abraham doesn't make them faithful followers of Yahweh. And what was interesting is because they were a state-regulated religion, they were allowed to only worship their God, but they were also more likely to um, uh, make compromise in their faith and bow down to other gods. So verse 10. I love this. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer because I'm going to take you out of them. Is that what he says? No, he says, don't be afraid of any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus' promise, you are going to suffer. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell him he'll stop it. He says you're going to suffer. And, and suffering is a promise of Scripture. In John chapter 15, he talks about this. But uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. says in verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul is commending his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, you have carefully followed my doctrine, Timothy, your manner of life, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. You know what persecutions that I endured, and out of them all the Lord has delivered me. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and be deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, I know and you have seen the way that I've lived and what I've been through. But you must maintain your faith because you can endure them as I have, is what he's saying. You will suffer persecution, but also know the Lord has delivered me through each thing that I've experienced. He is faithful. So persecution can actually be proof that you're living righteously. The righteous will be persecuted. And so something to consider is that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus always also spoke this to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In the blesseds, he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. But then he goes on. I'm in Mark, not Matthew. He goes on in chapter 5, verse 10. And he says this, blessed are those. That word there means, oh, how happy. And it's not like happy, I got a new car. It's like joy. When you got nothing to be happy about, and yet you still have the peace and the presence of God, you have joy. He says, Oh, how happy are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he says, you are about to suffer. And he says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Tested is that idea of being proved. It's how they would test a scale in those days to make sure it wasn't a a weighted or a false scale for measuring coin. It was tested and approved. You know, you don't find out what's in the tube of a toothpaste tube until you squeeze it and many times we get squeezed and nastiness comes out and we're like well that wasn't really me and i would submit to you that it is but what god wants to do is give us a new source that flows into us and out of us and we are proved to be what we say we are when we experience tribulation but he also says you will have tribulation 10 days now If you read commentaries about this passage, there's all these prophetic, like, I think it means this, and I think it means that. But what I would submit to you is that the 10 days means that it has a time span. It's not forever. You will be crushed. You will go through tribulation for a set amount of days. But when there's a set amount of days, there's an end to those days. And so tribulation, this crushing pressure, is what they were experiencing. And so as we talked about, the word Smyrna, the name of their city, was come from the root word myrrh. Now myrrh, you hear about it spoken in the New Testament. Um, it's a spice that's extracted from a bush by beating the bush on the ground. That's how you get this spice. It was used in Jewish anointing oil when they would anoint a king. Uh, It was also used to anoint priests, but it was also an embalming spice. And if you remember, 
the, the three wise men, we always say it's three wise men, we don't know how many, but they brought three gifts. And one of them was myrrh, which was an odd thing to bring to a child that was being born because it was, it was an embalming spice. It's actually a spice you'd use to make sure a dead body didn't smell bad. And so they brought the embalming spice, but it's also a perfume. It's an expensive perfume. But interestingly enough, myrrh, the only way to extract it from the bush is to take the bush and whack it against the ground. And you might not think that it's fair, but God allows us to be whacked against the ground. He allows us to be crushed. He allows us to be persecuted, not because he doesn't love us, but because he so loves the world. He allowed his own son to be crushed, to be persecuted, to be beaten, to be cut, to be tortured, because he so loves the world. And he was producing something. He was revealing something through him, this wonderful smelling spice, this anointing oil, this perfume. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there in verse 6, Paul, who had suffered much, he says, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's placed light within you. But we have, verse 7, this treasure, this light he just spoke about, it's in earthen vessels, jars of clay, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not left alone or forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. That idea of taking that, that myrrh bush and striking it on the ground, we're struck down, yet not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus all may also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And so, he says, you will be persecuted, but what Satan means for evil, God uses to reveal Jesus in you. He knows. So his counsel to them Notice that he doesn't criticize them. In Ephesus, he says, I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. But to the church that's suffering, he has no criticism. He has no, uh, he's not going to correct them. There's actually only two letters where Christ issues no correction, and this is one of them. But his instruction to them is, keep going. Be faithful unto death. Don't give up. I know you're suffering, I know what it's like, and I am with you. And then he goes on. He says, I will give you the crown of life. Now think about this. They were living in a place called the crown of Asia. You may not inherit this earth. You may not inherit for them the crown of Asia. That may not be your 
you may never get to enjoy this place. This is, for you is a place of enjoyment for all the world, and yet you're suffering here. But he says to you, I will grant the crown of life. And I believe it's a real crown. Like there are several crowns mentioned in the New Testament, and we will be rewarded according to our works. Some of us will get crowns like this, the crown of life. And I believe that when we get to heaven and he gives us that crown, it's just something that we get to throw to the Lord, something that we get to give him. And I hope there's a big pile of crowns at his feet just to show who he is. He's the king of kings. Crowns go on kings. Suffering makes us kings. That doesn't make sense to the flesh, does it? And yet that's what scripture teaches us. I will give you the crown of life. And then he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So I want to share a real story with you, not from the Bible, but from church history about a man by the name of Polycarp. And I cheated. I didn't write up my own synopsis. This is from Christianity Today. Polycarp was the leader of the Smyrnan church. Did you know that? And he was martyred for his faith in 156 AD. Just 60 years after this letter was written, Polycarp got to live out these things that we just learned. Which, based on him being 86 at his arrest and his death, makes him around 26 when this letter was written by John. It's interesting. God gave the right information at the right time. So what we find out, Polycarp had been a Christian since he was a child, but the Romans didn't get around to killing him until he was in his 80s. Whatever the reason for the delay, it's still the first recorded martyrdom in post-New Testament church history. He lived during the most formative era of the church, at the end of the age of the original apostles, when the church was making the critical transition to the second generation of believers. Tradition has it that he was personally discipled by the apostle John and that he was appointed as bishop of the Smyrna church in our modern day Izmir in Turkey. But some of the original, excuse me, he was, he was appointed by some of the original apostles. In his later years, he did his best to settle disputes about the date to celebrate Easter. He confronted one of the church's most troublesome heretics, the Gnostic Marcion, calling him the firstborn of Satan. So he was kind of a fiery guy. Um, when he ran into him in Rome. Now, Polycarp was also responsible for converting many from Gnosticism. He, his only existing writing was a pastoral letter to the church at Philippi. And it shows that he had little formal education and he was unpretentious. He was humble, yet he was direct. So we don't have no college-educated guy here. And yet what it says, he says, such traits are especially evident in the account of his martyrdom, which was written within a year of his death. It's not clear exactly why he was suddenly, at age 86, subject to arrest. But he heard Roman officials were intent on arresting him. He decided to wait for them at his house. Panic-stricken friends pleaded with him to flee. So to calm them, he finally agreed to withdraw to a small estate outside of town. But while in prayer there, he received some sort of vision. Whatever he saw or heard, we don't know. He simply reported to his friends that now he understood. I must be burned alive, is what he said. Now, 
Roman soldiers eventually discovered Polycarp's whereabouts. They came to his door, and when his friends urged him to run, Polycarp replied, God's will be done. Sound familiar? Our Savior said the same words on the night of his betrayal, and he let the soldiers in. He was escorted to local proconsul, Stadius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Sound familiar? Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. He'd be thrown to wild beast. He'd burned at the stake and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, he slyly added, cannot be quenched. Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped them. He said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security of, that you desire from nails. He prayed aloud, the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. The chronicler of this martyrdom said it was not as burning flesh, but it looked like baking bread or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. The account concluded by saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. He is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. So I would submit to you that the way that we die is as, is as or more important than the way that we live. And I would submit to you that as believers, when we came to Christ, we reckoned ourselves to be already dead. And now it's not us who lives, but it's Christ who lives in us. Polycarp, by the way, proved that. Christ was manifested more clearly than I've ever read about in his life, but it was also manifested in his death. And so, as believers, may it be granted unto us the grace not only to live well, but also the willingness to be squeezed well. Maybe we'll never experience any sort of day in our country that's like that, but I submit to you that we have brothers and sisters around the world that we can either ignore like the Jews did in Smyrna, or we can pray for them and identify with their suffering and also pray, Lord, would it be to me that if I experienced the same thing, would I glorify you in pain and suffering? So Father, it's a heavy word this morning, and I definitely don't want to leave it that way, but you've called us to die to ourselves. Jesus, you said that if anyone would come after me, they must first deny themselves pick up their cross, and follow you. And I want to be among those number. Help us to be faithful until the end. Help us to live well, but as adults and as kids alike, help us to finish well. You are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of the fruit of our lips. You're worthy of the joy that you give. You're worthy of our suffering as well. Help us to be willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness and to live it out and not to give up or lose hope. We love you, Lord. We do pray for our suffering uh, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that even now are joining together to fellowship knowing that it could mean their last prayer meeting, knowing that it be, could be their last church service. And here we have windows, we have roads, we have 
Facebook Live and, and we're not worried about dying. And yet, I wonder how many of us would be willing to still stand up for the cause of Christ if it would cost us our life. Lord, thank you for giving us yours. Help us to give us, help us to give ours to you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. Help us to know what we're supposed to do with this information. Help us to live like we truly love you with our whole heart, our mind, and our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.